So we've killed the Facebook pages and Twitter pages for Debatable and All the Pieces Matter. Um, they were basically acting as glorified fan pages um, that we weren't using very much. Um, if you know anything about Facebook's API, in order for people to see your posts, uh, you have to promote them. You have to put money into it, and we just didn't have the money for that investment. And as far as Twitter was concerned, we weren't doing anything with those accounts other than uh, posting new episodes. It's not like we were live tweeting or doing anything with them. So basically, our social network presence was kind of pointless. So those pages got killed. Uh, Debatable and All the Pieces Matter are in the same places that they've always been. iTunes, Tumblr, um, and you can really support the shows by going on over to iTunes, subscribing so you get new episodes when they come out, and obviously leaving a rating and review. Um, You know, it uh, exposes more people to it, uh, puts a spotlight on the shows. Tell your friends and family, spread the word. So those are the places that you can usually get us, and it'll continue to be that way. If you do want to follow us on Twitter, find out when new episodes are released, and, you know, have a back and forth, have, you know, leave feedback, have a back and forth with me and Fernando, um, I'm Mr. Greggles, M-I-S-T-E-R-G-R-E-G-G-L-E-S, and uh, he is Arturo Morla, A-R-T-U-R-O-M-O-R-L-A. And uh, with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to the Debatable Podcast. Today on the show we've got Floyd Norman, who's the first African-American animator from Disney. Um, He is a a gracious and wonderful person, but he is a master, a name, someone recognizable in the industry that if you've never heard of him, uh, you should seek out his work and you'll find that uh, he certainly has had an indelible mark on the animation industry. He's got a new, um, uh, he's the subject of a new documentary called Floyd Norman, An Animated Life that Eric Sharkey and Michael Fiore directed. Um, This interview was recorded on October 30th, but the movie is currently available on Netflix and for purchase uh, Blu-ray DVD on Amazon and other places. So definitely go check it out. I uh, had such a good time talking to Eric Sharkey about his Drew Struzan project um, some time ago, and uh, this one with Floyd Norman is is nothing short of of, of amazing and so fun, especially if you're a, a buff when it comes to animation and Disney, it's uh, it's such a, a sweet um, step back. These this documentary. So uh, enjoy this interview with Floyd Norman and check out the movie. Um, first of all, Mr. Norman, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so sure. uh, happy to have the the time to talk to you. Okay. Um, 
uh, Eric Sharkey is uh, a person that I interviewed on this show before um, on his uh, Drew Struzan documentary. And, um, right. you know, I'd heard that he was working on this around the time that I interviewed him. And uh, sure. I, was, I showed, showed a lot of interest in it. And he, he finally came around and put us back in, in contact um, when, he, when I knew that he was doing this with Michael Fiore. And, um, right. It's really something else um, to, to, to talk about for for people uh, outside of the industry or, or people who are not in the know. Um, just like with Drew Struzan, I think that if you don't know the name, you definitely are familiar with the work. And um, sure. you being uh, the first African-American animator at Disney, starting there in 1956, with credits that include Sleeping Beauty, Jungle Book, The Smurfs, Snork, stuff that you did with Hanna-Barbera, um, um, all right. the intro for Soul Train, all the way up into these Pixar movies like Toy Story Two and Monsters Inc. And I see that e- even a recent uh, credit with uh, Robot Chicken, just stuff that that yeah. a lot of people of many generations right. are familiar with. Sure, sure. So uh, I am I am beside myself to, to tell you that I'm I'm a big fan. I wanted to know how did the film come together because. You have a documentary uh, that's uh, that's going to be on Netflix uh, next week on November first, right. sure. um, called that's Floyd right. Norman: An Animated uh, An Animated Life. Um, how did this come together with uh, with Michael Fiore and um, and Eric Sharkey? Well, really, uh, the guy who brought us together, and it was simply by accident, was the illustrator Drew Struzan, who is a friend of mine and. Uh, uh, almost a neighbor. He lives right down the street from me here in Pasadena. Uh, I was simply going over to uh, offer my congratulations to Drew uh, on the completion of his documentary. And um, while going to speak with Drew, that's when I met for the first time uh, Eric Sharkey. Uh, Eric was the director and producer of the Drew documentary. And so that was uh, our first meeting. And... uh, I guess that's what uh, that's how the whole thing got started. I was introduced to to Eric. Uh, he was looking to start another project after having completed the Drew documentary. Mm-hmm. So uh, I never, I honestly didn't take it seriously. I thought the fact that he had shown interest in my life and career, uh, I thought it would be forgotten until he did contact me sometime later. I guess it was nearly a number of months later, we made a contact again while I was in New York City. And uh, the idea for the documentary was apparently in his head, uh, alive and well. And so we we actually started our filming uh, in New York uh, before returning to California. That's fantastic. Did they follow you for a couple of years? Uh, not a couple of years, I would say for at least a year, mm-hmm. at least a year of shooting, uh, beginning with our, our uh, initial uh, photography uh, in New York City. Uh, we then, a month or so later, picked up again in California, and then uh, I realized I was going to have a, uh, a, a film crew as part of my family. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> more, more or less, because they were going to be uh, tagging me around. Uh, wherever I went. And that took me not only to the Walt Disney Studios, it took me up to San Francisco, Mm -hmm. uh, to my hometown of Santa Barbara, to San Diego. Uh, So we were on the move, you know. What was was that like for you? Was it intrusive at all? 
No, not for me. Luckily, uh, they they got a guy who was pretty much used to the filmmaking process. Being a filmmaker myself, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of being uh, wired for sound and having cameramen follow me around, uh, that was not at all unusual because I had done that myself, right. only on the other side of the camera. In this case, the camera was pointed at me. Right. But no, I didn't find it intrusive because I understood the process. So basically, I tried my best to ignore the camera and crew <laughs> and go about my uh, my daily uh, routine and uh, to keep to keep the uh, film as as honest and as authentic as possible. Right. Um I think with, you know, where your story starts and kind of the arc that's covered in the documentary. It's a great movie by the way. I, I hope that you uh check it out you listeners. But um I think that seeing where your your life has gone, you know, from uh, starting at Disney on, um, I wonder how often the racial adversity question comes up. I feel like liberal progressive interviewers and, and probably media and anybody who interviews you uh, might want to, to start there, um, the racial adversity you've put up with but it seems like even in the, the the stance that you have in the in the documentary that you were always more concerned as Walt Disney was uh, with talent over kind of dwelling on the racial adversity question is that true well that's very true in the sense that uh, and I have to remind people that an artistic community when you're dealing with uh, artists writers composers uh, that's a community that's concerned with art mm-hmm. and and the ability of the artist. They are not really concerned all that much with whether the artist is male or female, black or white, mm-hmm. uh, or Jew, you know, Gentile or Jew. They, they they're mainly concerned with the artist and and the work they do. So my adversity uh, because of the color of my skin, I, I have to say, was almost non-existent with the exception of maybe one incident at the Disney studio in the 1960s, there was was never really a problem. And uh, I think people expect that there might have been, but uh, I'm happy to say that the incidents were were few. Uh, And really only one major, major incident at the Disney studio. And again, that was just, you know, a couple of individuals. I, I certainly wouldn't, uh, paint the entire studio uh, with that attitude because the, the the studio was very welcoming and very gracious and extended to all of us young artists uh, their best and, and helped us and mentored us uh, not not just the studio staffers but Walt Disney in particular right. was was uh, just a great guy to work for. Right. I think that you've been kind of an outspoken um, uh, supporter of trying to clear the air around Walt Disney's kind of, uh, yeah, this kind of controversy about either his anti-Semitism, his racism, whatever people have labeled them, uh, labeled him without kind of um, really knowing the man. You've been one of these outspoken supporters of trying to to set the the record straight. Yeah, and and that's very important because uh, most of the people, if not all of the people who make these accusations, are people who never worked for Walt Mm. Disney. They are also people who never even met Walt Disney. And so they have very firm opinions based on their own, you know, their own baggage, their their own agenda. Mm. Uh, As a guy who spent a, a good deal of time at the Disney studio 
and a good deal of time with the man himself, uh, I think I can speak with some credibility uh, that I work for Walt Disney. I knew Walt Disney. I knew the kind of man he was. And so when I hear all of the accusations by those who do not like him for one reason or another, I just have to speak out. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being fair and honest. And I often remind people that, of course, Walt Disney was not a perfect man mm-hmm. by any means. He had his faults. He probably drank too much. We do know he certainly smoked too much. <laughs> but as, as, a, as a leader and as a, as, as a visionary and as, as my boss, uh, we really had no complaints uh, right. about the old man. Yeah, he was, he was a great leader, and he was extremely generous with uh, so many of us. Sure. Are you comfortable at all with kind of the, your, your place in, in being a, a, an influence and kind of a, um, a, 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 a torch holder for so many animators and, and directors? Are you comfortable with, with feeling like, you know, n- not that you're this, um, uh, you know, I don't know if you would personally put you on the same plane as the original nine old men, but do you feel no, no, any sort of any any sort of comfort with being someone's idol, especially in the industry? Yeah, well, it doesn't it doesn't bother me. I think what happens if you live long enough in this business, <laughs> you automatically sort of gain status as the grand old man, <laughs> simply because simply because you're still around. Now, and I understand that. And, and I, if I was a young kid starting out in the business, I would look to people like myself sure. because not because we're great or fabulous, but, but simply because we've been around. Right. We've we've uh, we've been in the business long enough. We've uh, we've paid our dues. We've earned our stripes. And so, what I do now, as suddenly I'm the old guy when I, I started out as a young guy, but now I'm the old timer, and I share what I've learned and what I've experienced with the young people as they come up very much like we did over 50 years ago when we came to the studio as Mm -hmm. kids. Now I have the opportunity, like those who mentored me, I have the opportunity to pass on my experience and what I've learned to a new generation of filmmakers. Absolutely. And so uh, actually I take pleasure in that. It's not a burden and it doesn't bother me. And when, when kids come to me for advice, I'm happy to help them, as those uh, who came before me were generous enough to help me. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, a big part of the documentary um, that I, I didn't know was going to be um, as prevalent as it was, was kind of going down this, the, you know, I thought that maybe the racial adversity would be more of a, a topic, but, you know, as we yeah. get to later in the film, um, ageism seems to be something yeah. that you and Leo really um, uh, strike on. And I feel like that's a big thing, you know, that that ageism really factors into people's view of how uh, good or how uh, uh, prevalent someone's current yeah. work is. And I think that you've had sure. to deal with that quite a bit. You're 81 now, right? Yeah, yes, I am. And, of course, the uh, the expectation with my film Everybody, uh, you know, everybody seems to think it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to deal with color. It's going to deal with right. race when, when actually that is very, a very minor part of my life and my career. Uh, this issue of ageism is something everybody can relate mm-hmm. to because it's, it's one thing we all share in common. Every one of us will grow older. 
And so this is an experience that everyone will have. Now, if they are lucky enough to have a job where their age is not relevant, uh, good for them. But for many people, when they hit age 65, uh, many companies, uh, there's an expectation for that person to move on. That that person has put in their time, and now it's time to give way for younger workers. And while I have no qualms with that, I think it's quite fair to uh, give opportunities for young people who are coming into the business, no matter what business it happens to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Old people do have to give way. But where I think it's wrong is when we expect everyone of a certain age to to clear out, to move on, right. and to uh, and to pack up their bags and and uh, and no longer do what they do, what they've uh, what they're good at, wh- right. what they've learned so much over a lifetime of work. I think it's important that companies retain older workers, if for no other reason than to mentor a new generation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it, too, because I think about, you know, the wisdom and the experience that you bring to the table, especially in your industry, and that, you know, forcing someone out, you know, it would be a different story, I think, if 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 it affected the business, if it affected, you know, this particular person's productivity. But, you know, right. from all accounts and from what I'm observing, you know, it's something, this industry and, and what, what you do, your work is something that you love and you you put your passion and your life into it is your life so to right. to force someone out of that that's that's almost it's 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 a horrible thing to uh, to see yeah yeah and yet i'm able to see the other side of the picture as well because right. after all uh, there's economics in mind and companies are looking to reduce costs right uh, if they can bring in a younger worker to replace an older worker and pay him or her less money, there's an economic incentive to, you know, to do so. Mm-hmm. So I understand where companies are coming from when they uh, move out an older person and bring in a younger one. Uh, there's a business reason for doing that. And so I understand that. And I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, being a Pollyanna and expecting, <laughs> you know, all companies to remain generous and sure. keep all of their older, older workers on the payroll. I would just like to see a little more balance. I would like to see some older workers retained should they want to stay on the job. Some may want to retire. Some may uh, want to go and travel the world and and, uh, take a break from work. Uh, That's understandable as well. But for those who would like to stay, for those who would like to pass on what they've learned, I think companies should encourage that and should welcome that attitude because it's going to benefit them in the long run. Absolutely. Um, you know, you've like most people, you've had many arcs in your life, many different avenues that uh, that have uh, made up this life of yours, and including uh, you, like you mentioned, being a filmmaker of your own with Vignette Films. Yeah. Um, right. You know, you, you you did you did some some big things with that. You did educational and corporate uh, films, but you also uh, covered the Watts riot. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of what Vignette did was just out of necessity. Uh, we did whatever we could to keep working, uh, to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were filmmakers, and any job that came our way, we took it. Uh, of course, like all filmmakers, we had aspirations to do great things, that is, make feature-length motion pictures. That opportunity never came our way. 
However, uh, we did do some good work, and I'm very proud of it. And uh, I don't regret that uh, that that uh, venture, uh, even though we never made the big time. I think it was still worth the time and the energy that we put into it. I think a lot of good came out of Vignette Films. Was it a coincidence that the the subject matter of a lot of the films that you did and the projects were about the African American experience, um, paralleling with with civil rights, or you know, is that something you guys had to take on since you were all African Americans? Well, no, no. Actually, it came about simply because of the uh, of the time. It, yeah. it was the nineteen sixties. And there was a good deal of uh, uh, talk about the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and the social uh, unrest in the country. Keep in mind, the 1960s was a very turbulent time, a time of change. Uh, Doing films on black history was just a part and parcel of that time. Uh, We as filmmakers just jumped into it, not with any racial agenda, but just... uh, uh, filling the need uh, right. for the marketplace. Right. The schools had had a need for films on African-American history, so we were there to fill that need. But we did films on other subjects as well. I think a lot of people think we were kind of like simply the, you know, we, we were a one-note company, a company simply producing films on black history. No, we did films on uh, everything from, from uh, space and metrics mm-hmm. and and juvenile justice, and uh, you know, we did legal films. Uh, you know, we did a lot of things. I just, I think we're known because of those uh, African American history films. But that was only one thing, and that was mainly because of the of the time uh, in our country. It was uh, a very uh, turbulent time and a time of social unrest, right. and so that's why those films were produced. Right. Yeah, the little snippets that we do see in the documentary, I mean, they, they certainly remind me of, of uh, my school days of, of growing up seeing these, you know, film yeah. strips and everything. They, very interesting stuff, and, and definitely, oh, yeah. you know, adding to um, a curriculum that I think in a lot of, a big part of the com- uh, country, you're not getting enough of, you know, a well-rounded understanding of, of your history, including African-Americans. Yeah. Um, you right. know, you, you mentioning with, with uh, the ageism question, you know, I think the thing that's very unique about you, too, is that, um, and you make a point of it in the documentary, that uh, you stay up with, with technology, and you stay up with, yeah. with kind of um, what is happening in the animation and kind of even the, the you know, like even with uh, uh, um, Robot Chicken, which is very much, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a <laughs> Technology driven type of animation. Yeah. Um, right. It keeps you, it keeps you uh, young, that, that part of it, doesn't it? It does indeed. Yeah. And I, I think that's extremely important. Uh, it, I think growing old is, is, is more than just your body aging, mm-hmm. it's growing old in attitude as well. Right. Uh, I've always tried to remain relevant, I've always tried to keep up with technology and, and uh, look forward to see where the future is going. I was thinking this morning how I used to dream about uh, when I was doing layouts some 30 or 40 years ago, how I wish I had a device that would enable me to move uh, objects, you know, in virtual mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Well, that that technology had not even been invented, invented when I was thinking about it. Uh, I had to wait until the technology <laughs> caught up with my ideas 
uh, today when I work, I can use a computer yeah. and I can use software that will enable me to do the kind of things I only dreamed about, you know, 50 years ago. But now that technology is here. So I think it's very important to stay current and, and to look toward the future. If, if, you, if you don't, you really do grow old in every sense of the word. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Norman, yeah. thank you so much for the time. And um, like I told you at the beginning of the um, podcast, everyone, please check out the, the uh, documentary. It's going to be on Netflix <laughs> on November 1st, um, right. Floyd Norman and the Animated Life. Um, is there anything else you want to plug, Mr. Norman, before we go? I would just like to say uh, I, I'm, I'm happy that uh, audiences are enjoying this film. Uh, one of the nice things about it, it is a documentary that it's fun to watch. Uh, mm-hmm. My life and career has been has been a happy one. Uh, it's been a, a joy-filled career, and I think that comes across on the screen. You don't have to worry about leaving the theater or your screening room depressed. Right. I think if you watch this film, you'll have a good time. It's a great celebration of your life. Thank you very much, Mr. Norman. Have a good day. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. See ya. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.